Welcome to the Actors' Equity podcast series. In 2014, Actors' Equity celebrates its 75th birthday, and over the coming months we will bring to you an oral history collected over the past years which celebrates the achievements and milestones of actors. We will bring to you insights and observations from performers about their profession and why they value their union membership. Well, I feel I should go back even further uh, to the gold rushes. As I do in my historic talks on the theatre here, I say the differences between the two gold rushes, the gold rush on the East Coast and the gold rush here in the West, made not only a vast difference to our built-up environment, but to our cultural environment as well. Of course, by the late 1870s into the 80s, Melbourne and Sydney were fully formed towns, show towns within the British Empire, and entertainers from... Uh, America, across the Pacific, uh, that sea route brought major entertainers of the era to play Melbourne and Sydney. We still didn't have a theatre to put them in. Uh, as late as 1876, Frank Towers, a comedy company, would ha- there was no guarantee that there'd be a ship around to Fremantle, a steamer around to Fremantle, and they, this particular company got off at Albany, had to wade ashore, and it was a six-day trip overland to Perth to play six days and perhaps get in an extra couple of performances at Fremantle. Then they had to go the six days overland back to Albany. Well, think of the theatres that were in Melbourne and Sydney by 1876. And the era of marvellous Melbourne, uh, uh, the 1880s, well, Perth was still asleep, of course, because uh, we had sent our young population over there to the gold rushes. And then Melbourne was up and built as, as, as marvellous Melbourne in the 1880s and went into the most dreadful depression in the 1890s, just as our gold rush wealth began to bubble to the surface. And so everybody came back again. And uh, that's why Perth missed out on that era of high Victoriana that Melbourne is so gloriously famous for. Uh, our city, this is why we're celebrating all these centenaries now, uh, because Perth around about the 1890s started to come awake, and London sent out a complete company from the Gaiety Theatre to play Melbourne and Sydney in 1888. Uh and Sarah Bernhardt played Melbourne in Sydney in 1891. We still didn't have a proper theatre to put them in, even if they could have got here. We had our first theatre, the, 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 the curtain raiser to this place, the shell of which still stands in the Hay Street Mall, a Theatre Royal built in 1897. And we had to wait until 1898 for the first of the J.C. Williamson's companies to come here with the, 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 the Gilbert and Sullivans, you see. So... Uh, Melbourne and Sydney has very much the jump start on Perth culturally. And the isolation of Perth, and we cannot uh, uh, overlook that isolation, led to the amateur movement having a strength and importance here that was perhaps not, uh, 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 not the case in Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, they did the plays, the great plays. They had stabs at all the great plays that were, frankly, uneconomical to bring over here to the West. I mean, you can imagine the standard of some of them, but they, but they did them. And uh, 
we, we know how much a musical costs to bring over here now. I mean, the cost of bringing cabaret recently was absolutely astronomical. Well, coming by ship or by uh, by the, the by rail, uh, the the costs were relatively just just as expensive. And coming by ship, of course, you couldn't guarantee the opening night because uh, uh, you know the, it will open this week sometime, depending on the arrival of the ship. And uh, the amateur movement developed a very great importance in this state. In fact, the, the most important group was the Repertory Club, which was launched here in 1920. A play was done here that was so successful, they thought, right, we've got something going here, and created the Playhouse and, the, and uh, created the, the Repertory Club, and for many, many years it presented all these works. And there were people like Nancy Nunn, Judy Nunn's mother, and... Uh, Nita Panel, of course, and she was in the right place at the right time. Uh, she went on to play the, the, the do the premiere season of um, the uh, the one day of the year. And looking at dear Nita, you think, God, she was subjected to a bomb scare because we do forget that the opening night in Sydney of uh, the one day of the year it was considered such an insult to Anzac Day that they had a bomb scare. And uh, then, of course, Pat Patrick White saw her and he wrote um, uh, a Cheery Soul for her and the, what, the, the mountain, the, uh, the, the, one, the other one, the one about the goat lady. Can't quite remember the title. <clears throat> uh, and interestingly, in the middle of all this, in the, I'm going gradually bringing the amateur movement up to the 30s, there was a very conservative a drama critic for the West Australian newspaper who worked under the name of Polygon. Very, very conservative man. And uh, he went on, on, of course, to become the Governor-General, Sir Paul Hasluck. So you've got all these interesting people. And you also, with the, um, you, the, the new theatre, a part of the new theatre movement, we had here, we had the Workers' Art Guild. And uh, they used to come here and enter this theatre and enter the drama festivals every year. And along would come the Repertory Club and the Garrick Club and the Play Lovers into these polite, chintzy little drawing room comedies from the West End. And along would come the uh, the, the Workers' Art Guild with something like, you know, bury the dead and win. And it's interesting, you had this mixture of people at the time Catherine Susanna Pritchard who was one of the founders and uh, Axel Poignant the national uh, the photographer and Harold Vike, the artist and in the middle of it all was this bloody conservative drama critic Sir Paul Hasluck and in my more fevered moments I sometimes think of uh, a late at night after the show Catherine Susanna Pritchard and Sir Paul Hasluck standing up there on the stage, you know, arguing the toss over pre-war politics. So we go into the Second World War and travel restrictions prevented shows from coming here with very, very few exceptions. So just as Melbourne and Sydney were, the, particularly the Tivoli circuit, was thrust into its own devices and had to use Australian stars, here in the West, <clears throat> the, the the local entertainers were very much on their own and the repertory club became 
a major centre for for, for world-time entertaining and and fundraising for groups like uh, uh, the Siemens uh, uh, Abroad and all, all those sorts of things. And they raised many, many, many thousands of pounds. And then came the, uh, immediately after the war, came the visit of Lawrence Olivia and Vivian Lee. And that was one of the great impetuses, if whatever the plural of impetus is, uh, to get uh, a, a professional movement started here in Perth. And these dear amateurs of Perth had uh, miles of pennies and ugly knees contests and everything to raise money uh, to start building the Perth Playhouse. And it was through their efforts that the playhouse was built. They only got a one; uh, they got a thirteen thousand pound loan from the government, and it was they who built the playhouse. And the repertory club became the National Theatre. There were several splinter groups, like the Company of Four, and so forth. And uh, that, that, as I said, became the National Theatre at the Perth Playhouse. It's a very ponderous title now, isn't it? A misnomer. But remember, that was to be part of the, the Gertrude Johnson uh, National Theatre movement out of Melbourne. And the Elizabethan Trust was established at the same time and so forth. And it was going to be the Perth branch was the National Theatre. And... Um, it, it went on, and then of course they brought out Edgar Metcalf to be the uh, the the, the uh, artistic director, um, and we are now desperately in need of a new Perth Playhouse. Desperately in need. Of, I mean, visitors to Perth come and look at that riverfront and think, what? I mean, why are we congenitally incapable here in the West of making use of the riverfront, I ask you? And uh, we, are, we have the Monty Python-esque situation where the best drama theatres, the best equipped drama theatres, with cutting-edge technology, are scattered around the school grounds in the suburbs. And so we have... Kids today, the school kids, who have these beautiful theatres as play things, playgrounds, you know, and so they do their annual concerts in there, they get a taste for theatre, so they go and have three years training, and, uh, and at the age of 25, whereas at the age of 15, say, they're dressing in these beautiful luxurious dressing rooms in these theatres on the school grounds and at 25 they're dressing in a broom cupboard in the cooperative at the blue room over here which is the former school room and you wonder why I go crook so that is the situation we have now meanwhile the Perth Playhouse is becoming more and more and more outdated but it, it, even though it is outdated, we must never, never uh, overlook the contribution that these amateurs made. It, it was a spirit of giving. You know, they were doing it for the right reasons. I did several plays at, at the Playhouse, you know, as aid of the amateur. 
And I don't know how I survived when I went to Melbourne and Sydney, but I got in stage managing and I did shows all around. And I was uh, lucky enough to be cast uh, as Niagas in The Merry Widow with June Bronhill. And I did the Australian and national tour with that. And I think I did over 300 performances. And that has been repeated in my, my life. Oh, yes, we got into Sydney... And uh, there was a hotel near the Sydney Tivoli, uh, uh, um, just near the old Phillips Street Theatre, right up on the corner there. I cannot remember the street. But one day we had a performer, Thea Phillips, who had been a great Wagnerian, and she had come out uh, to Australia in the 30s with, uh, with Florence Ostral Company, and she stayed, and she became a big teacher in Melbourne, in Sydney. But she retired, and the director uh, from the Sadler's Wells came out to Australia, found out that she was then living in Melbourne, and persuaded her to come out of retirement to play this small role in The Merry Widow with Bronhill. And we forget just how big Bronhill was. She was enormous. And anyway, Thea... Phillips was staying at the same pub that I was staying at. And it was just, you know, that undercut under the railway line through to where the, 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 the Sydney Tivoli was. And I was doing, playing, doing the stage manager of it at this time. And someone, and previous Saturday night, Thea had arrived back at the hotel. They'd been off to a party. And she was a large woman, and she was literally carried upstairs. She was absolutely shickered out of her mind. She was put to bed. So this particular night, she hadn't turned up for the performance. And I said, well, I'll go back to the hotel. And we, anyway, we found her dead in the, the, this hotel. So there, And I look in these drawers. Every so often I come across the name of Thea... Phillips. So I went on to take over the part of Dagus with Bronhill and then we went to New Zealand and all that. And uh, then I came home and I did a, another production of the, the WA Opera here of, uh, of The Merry Widow. And then years later, I, I directed it myself for the WA Opera with Kevin Johnson doing the choreography and it was miraculous. Beautiful, beautifully designed. I couldn't have, you know, you've got these lumps of wood, the West Australian chorus, you know, being veritable new AFs, thanks to, um, thanks to uh, Kevin Johnson. Uh, and then there was the leading lady. Someone said to me, Ivan, she looks like Danny LaRue. I said, please get me Danny LaRue. <laughs> but so, so that was three, four times. And then to round this story off, last year, Richard Mills, who's the director of the WA Opera Cape in here, sat in that very chair and said, Ivan, he said, we are doing The Merry Widow later this year. He said, what did you think of playing the part of Praskovia? Uh, which is the part that Thea Phillips had played the lady I found dead so I didn't say anything and that was sort of an eerie to use that nauseating American term I never thought it would escape my lips sense of closure to the merry widow for me 
it's interesting how <laughs> life does these things to you. But Bronhill, she she was a miracle. And of course the dear lady's out of it now. And uh, incredibly mischievous. Incredibly mischievous. We played Newcastle and uh, we thought, well, we're not going to... Well, she decided that we weren't going to put up with the smoke and the grit and the grime of Newcastle, New South, and bad for the boys. So we found some holiday farm <laughs> out near the, um, the, where the Air Force Base is, and we drove in every, every, every night. And um, the, this strange family had been... They were sort of a Czechoslovakian minor royalty or aristocracy or something up the, on this farm. And he'd been high up in the cavalry. And he, one morning he was sitting there, Bromhill and the lot of us, having our breakfast. And he drove, he rode his horse through the kitchen with a sword just to let us know his, his background and, and all of this. And while we were sitting there, one day a telegram arrived from London saying, would she be interested in doing a musical version of, uh, of the Barretts of Wimpop Street? Well, of course, that was Robert and Elizabeth. So I was in on the ground floor there. It didn't seem a big deal to me. It didn't sort of seep into my conscience. That was the union you belonged to, you know. And uh, then I went on 18 months tour of theatre for young people to get the money to go to, to, to England. And uh, again, under conditions that were quite fraught, you know, doing three shows a day out in the middle of the scrub. We won't go into that. And uh, then I joined the English Union. And uh, for my sins, I became a leading man in a Butlins holiday camp. Oh, I've done it all. Yes. I think I'm the only person in the business who, who played Covent Garden Saturday night and Monday night I was a Butlin's holiday camp. Uh, mind you, but at Covent Garden I was an usher. And uh, I said to Janet Holmes at court recently, I can name drop, can't I, yes. I said to her, I think when I was at that Butlin's holiday camp and I was patronised out of my life for being a mere colonial and one of the worst of the Australian um, uh, 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 Hector Crawford numbers with the moving ceilings and walls, you know, was playing on television at the time which reinforced their prejudices no end and they'd come in and they would tease me with this ghastly dialogue next day that they'd heard on late night television, you know, <laughs> didn't even get prime time. I was a bloody mere colonial in a Butler's holiday camp, do you mind? So I said to Janet, Holmes Court, I said, Janet, I said, for someone who over 20 years ago was patronised out of my life for being a mere colonial, trying to break into the British theatre, I said it gave me immense, immense uh, 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 pride to know that all these years later... <laughs> A fellow West Australian now owns a string of all <laughs> their best London theatres. And she leaned over, patted me on the head. Yes, she said, and I fixed them up for them too. <laughs> so there was that. I, I did the English staying in digs, you know. I remember, uh, poor, you want poor? Oh, I can do a good line of poor. 
I remember once I had this um, uh, 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 jacket, um, suede jacket, and it was the only jacket I had at the time. And I got a ticket to one of the best shows in the West End, you know. And I was playing something in Golders Green. <laughs> you want the number one <laughs> gigs? I got them. And I had to get back in, and all I could afford to eat was at, the, at one of these working men's cafes. You say, oh, lovely grub there. And I went in, of course, it stank of stale oils and so forth. And I came out and the smell followed me, didn't it? And it impregnated my suede jacket. So there I went off to this theatre. And I had to take the bloody jacket off and put it under a seat, but I froze, but I didn't, it didn't smell like a West End cafe, at least. But those are the sorts of things. Those are the sorts of conditions. So there I was, and um, I was walking down Sloan Square one day, it wasn't all Butlins. I did meet Noel Coward, by the way, so I did have my highlights. Uh, and um, I bumped into Frank Baden-Powell. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm tired and I'm hungry and I want to go home. He said, well, come home and work for us. He was over there looking for some talent. So I came back and... Uh, Uh, about I arrived to say on the Monday and on the Thursday I was opening in Wild West uh, Diamond Lil's Wild West Saloon with Joan Sidney as Diamond Lil and me as Cecil the Sexy Sheriff of Sherbet City this is Dinkum and I do remember Frank Bainpower whipped up this sketch for me, I, both the goody and the baddie, you know, quicker. I had to run this side of the stage, put on the yellow hat and I was the goody, run that side of the stage, put on the black one and I was the baddie. I think Joan Sidney was changing a frock at the time and then go back and forth between the two. <coughs> well, we rehearsed it, the, 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 the half mornings that we did have to rehearse it. I um, had the yellow hat on here and did the routine, rushed over the other side, looked for the black hat, it wasn't there, Frank Baden-Powell was wearing it out in the audience. I mean, get the hook time, I died a death that night, and it was the, the, the bravest thing I did was come back in the next night and give it another go. Anyway, we worked for three years and we made it a huge success, a huge success. We ended up writing our own material just for sheer survival, because some of the rubbish we were given. Uh, I acted out all my fantasies, and one I played uh, Tarzan to Joan Sidney's Jane. It was so successful, this piece of drama, that it was extended. We did it for six months. <laughs> and I think I launched the Permissive Society on Perth with my bare bum when I went off <laughs> blackout. Um, so in the middle of all this, we forget it was the era of the £10 migrant, or to be less polite, the £10 POM. And Frank Baden-Powell brought out quite a number of £10 POMs for his music hall uh, uh, and various restaurants. And we had a couple at, at Diamond Lills. He struck gold, pure gold, in the form of Jenny McNay, who has become an absolutely indispensable part of the Perth scene in all facets, all facets. Uh, she is one of life's 
and it, one of Perth's mainstays. But some of the others were embarrassingly bad, you know. I mean, why pay a very expensive airfare from Melbourne and Sydney to bring somebody over from Melbourne and Sydney for three months, six months, if they, for 10 quid they can get an experienced POM for two years? So that was part of the, the beginnings of the, the Baden-Powell Empire. Joan Sidney was already here, by the way, and her family. They were well-established. And, um, well, we know what strength they brought to the, to the scene. But there were about six or seven of them who were just... <clears throat> uh, and so then came the starting of setting up the, the union movement here in the West. And uh, a lot of the, the, the early people were, were English part-timers, you know, who've fallen by the wayside, you know. You get to the those and think, whatever happened to, they're in it for five minutes and then they disappear. And um, so the... Branch was established here in Perth. I can't remember the nuts and bolts of it, but I will just give her the philosophy that we, we set up a professional infrastructure, a scaffolding within, within which the arts evolve through the years. I mean, no one wants still to be acting in flares, 70s style. But that structure was pl in place for things to change, to... And it, along came an, an arts minister named Peter Foss, who actually said, I'm not here to subsidise actors' lifestyles. We had survived the, just before that, we had survived the, the period when suddenly community theatre was all the rage, you know, and you've got to spread it out and you mustn't be elitist. <laughs> And uh, a, a lot of these community projects took so much energy and, and so much money. And then uh, 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 how can I put it? So, and what angered me about the, the local acting scene was he said that on national radio during one of the Perth festivals with interview with one of the national who'd come over here. There wasn't a peep out of any of the Perth actors that hadn't registered with them. He said it a couple of years later. And, of course, they were, hell broke loose. I said, weren't you listening to Radio National? And the theatre scene was... Uh, the, the professional infrastructure at scaffolding has been, to use the politest term, disassembled and I don't feel I belong to anything and I took great pride in what I find unforgivable is that the, 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 the most glorious term that can be applied to a seasoned experienced performer oh he's an old pro that is no longer a term of honour I don't even think it's used anymore and I think of the glorious old prose that you, you learn from you know one said to me she said darling she said Dave, you know I can't uh, 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 she said always pretend 
that you've got a bowl of water in front of you just before you make a gesture and you're flicking the water at your public, you know? Do it like that. And when you think about it, I've, I've said to, uh, that's the thing of playing big. <laughs> you know, we get uh, uh, companies from the dreaded East who've come over here who work in the 300-seaters. And this theatre finds them out. Uh, because they play to about the first eight or nine rows. And the directors were at fault here for, for, for when they, they're bringing the shows in. They sit halfway down the stalls. And you're sitting in the dress circle and you think, ooh, what about me? I'm up here in the dress circle. And if you're up in the gallery, I went up there one night just, and it was a lot of uh, head acting. That's all you saw. They were, they, you were, the, the, the gallery, the upper circle was not acknowledged once. And yet to free yourself up and flick the water, <laughs> it's the most wonderful thing to be able to act expansively. But you thought that they were that there was a television camera in front of me. Mm. Harry Bluck has a, uh, a, a an honourable position with the Musos Union that goes way way back to the to the post war, and with the the, the jazz musicians and so forth. And he, he, I've got his archive up there. You know, it's amazing to see a career reduced to a, a box of memorabilia. Uh, and Harry, to use his term, wore a lot of hats. He wore too many at occasions. Uh, that's that's from, from what I can see, and it led to a great deal of unnecessary friction. Uh, sometimes he was wearing the wrong hat at the right meeting or the, or the right hat at the wrong meeting, you know. And uh, But he... Uh, was one of those involved in the uh, saving and restoration of his, his majesties. He was in there. Um, perhaps there comes a time to step back from the meetings and just be an advisor. Perhaps that was the, 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 the situation with Harry. But he was he had a vast knowledge. Perhaps the uh, people... It, it was a vast knowledge that sh he should have waited occasionally for people to tap into it rather than um, offering it voluntarily at a meeting. Does that make sense? And I think that's what, what led to, to, to friction. Uh, But his talent has passed on with his daughter, Sue Black, who is now uh, one of the jazz divas of Perth. Uh, he was always f f fine with me, and he set the, the, he set the beginnings and set the nuts and bolts of the union in place. I mean, his knowledge was profound, and I don't think it could have been established without his steering at the beginning. But comes a time you step back and say, right, I'm here when I'm needed. And uh, I was not in a um, key position where I can, how can I put it, give you all the details of what went on. I was 
step back a bit. But that is an overall impression I have. But, but this union could not have been established as quickly, the, 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 the basic structure put in place without his vast knowledge. But as I said, I think he wore too many hats. Bob Faggeter is very much a union man and he worked tirelessly. He worked in his home, in his shed. He set things up there and he, 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 he was the mainstay at the beginning to the point of his almost wrecking his own health, I feel. Uh, I came into the dressing room one night, we're doing a play, and he was sitting there with papers, you know, ten minutes before the show, and he's got all the papers here, the union papers, and hunched over it. And I, I grabbed him by the shirt. I said, Bob, I could, I could almost iron my shirt on your shoulders. They're so stiff. I said, for Christ's sake, relax. And uh, I feel uh, he he became obsessed, and you've got to walk the the middle line because you, how, when you're like that, how can you free yourself up to to give a performance? We'll go back to the music hall, and and Frank Baden Powell's chain. It's hard to believe that we had a music hall in Perth and Fremantle. We had Dirty Dicks. We had a couple of wine bars going, and we had Diamond Lils. Wild West Saloon and we were paid minimum and I mean minimum uh, I mentioned that we wrote our own material didn't get a brass razoo for writing material but of course there was three months work wasn't there and six months work and at the time I was involved with a lot of babysitting in my extended family so it was the ideal job for me but uh, there was no, there were, there were no extras. There were no extras at all from from Baden Powell. Uh, the union was there, and lip service, I think, was was paid to it. There was no, there was no great union house. But in the other venues, you see, they were part timers often. They had a day job, and it was a lovely sort of little knees up for some of them, and a little bit of extra cash. So they didn't have to, to worry overly much about unions. Uh, and then, well, well that, that's how it operated. And, and that was the, the scene. Others will have to provide you with the, uh, the, 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 the technical details. I do remember we had great trouble trying to get pe people in the media involved in the union, the radio personalities and the TV uh, presenters and so forth, who saw themselves as a cut above, very much socially uh, uh, and uh, in every way above jo joining a mere union. Well, um, a lot of them have fallen by the wayside and it's interesting to, to know the number of them who uh, have had the dirty done on them who come to the union for I'm sure that's the same in every every state but it was interesting here in Perth the uh, 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 almost a class thing they thought they were above joining a union I mean I can remember being asked to do a commercial at the time 
uh, of Diamond Lills. Now we we made a fortune for Frank Baden Powell. I mean, it was the Diamond Lills that raked in the money that allowed him to begin the Dirty Dicks chain all over the country. Not a bonus, nothing. Nothing. I'd like to know where the money's gone. Uh, and we, we were coining it in for him, quite frankly. And I was asked to go to, to, a, to, a, to a commercial and uh, the, uh, the, the, the person who was interviewing me said, oh, you won't do that sort of thing you do on the stage up there, will you? You know? And I, I mean, these were the sorts of... But you must... I must tell you this, too, while we're on Frank Baden-Powell, socially, uh, it was he who almost single-handedly had the liquor laws changed in the state. Because the uh, the, liquor, the licensing situation was you could have a license for, for, for restaurants that sort of started at 6pm, say, and finished at 10. And if you had a nightclub, you could have a license that sort of started at 9 and finished at 11 or something like that. But he wanted to start his thing at 7 o'clock at night and finish at 1am. And it was this time when when drinks... And we straddled the two licensing things, you see. And we had to... Uh, uh, the thing was, you could drink as long as it was ancillary to a meal. So you could have a plate of bloody stale sandwiches sitting there on the table for three hours, not, not to take a bite out of one of them. As long as that plate of sandwiches was there, uh, you weren't breaking, breaking the laws. And sort of the law tried every which way to, to nab him and grab him. I remember one Saturday night we were, we were there uh, and this table of 20-somethings, this sort of couple was sitting there having a lovely night out at the, and laughing at all my jokes and I thought, oh God, they're, they're with it. When the show was over, we were called around to the... Um, Office and there they were. They were they, they were uh, playing clothes. They were there for no, making notes under the table when they took the last bite of sandwich and when they next had their, their drink. And then we were nabbed. One night, uh, to, to, uh, we were at the bar after after the show, and uh, two blokes arrived and said, "We're off the HMAS Sydney or Melbourne or whatever is at the port at the time. We're told to come into Dirty Dick, into Diamond Lills, and Ivan would give Ivan would give them a good time and buy them a drink. They were cops. And they hadn't even eaten. I mean, this is what you went through. But but he uh, Baden Powell was also a uh, a city councillor, and it was he through his efforts." got the liquor laws changed in this day. It sounds like a script, doesn't it? But these are, these are all facts. <laughs> We're never educated about, uh, about our own. And uh, you learnt about British history, or everything but except this, the environment that you sort of grew up in. And I joined the National Trust at one stage and I shunted off to the younger set... <laughs> For tea and tinies and fundraisers, while the while the the the, the, the dowagers.
uh, did the work. I thought, this is not for me. And I went to Melbourne and Sydney, and Ted Pask was starting the collection there. And it's just something... And I thought, well, why not hone my interest in my history down to my own city and my own work? So I began collecting things... And uh, this theatre museum literally began under my bed because that's where I stored things, you know. I picked up a few old yellowing photographs of the Repertory Club productions from the 20s and I was so green I stuck them on the wall of the old hole in the wall with, 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 with um, gaffer tape. I mean, <laughs> how did, how's that for saving photographs? <laughs> Using gaffer tape on them. And began collecting and collecting and collecting and it was treated as Ivan's hobby and I applied for help and assistance and I remember going to the Arts Council and two boffins sitting with their backsides you know this pose, don't move the cameras sat on the desks like this facing me and their eyes were working on independent orbits with alarm because I had come with this idea that didn't fit any category of arts funding or public service structure, you know? And someone said... I, I, uh, Harry Black, in fact, told me that it had been mentioned at one group and they said, well for that sort of thing you really need a committee of ladies to, to organise things those were his exact words but I thought the only way to survive this is to ignore all this and I began collecting material and uh, came the time the match reopened with bare walls who had the best collection of stuff to go on those bare walls and I became the honorary archivist for about three or four years and I got complimentary tickets to the opening night because this time I was still performing you see, let's not forget we were doing six and seven shows a year and I'd come in here and I'd do a little bit and I'd go back and be a star (laughs) but gradually this took over and I started getting paid on casual rates And everybody thought it was a lovely idea. Uh, But budget-wise, I learnt the art of pirouetting on a five-cent piece, you know. And I was shoved in one corner there. The one one place up in was there. They took the kitchen sink out so that they could fit me into the space. It's back there now. Uh, And, uh, well, gradually... It, 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 it has grown into into what it is. Uh, everybody thought it was a lovely idea, but it's amazing how few performers bother to come down and see it. I think I will uh, establish the... I, I think if I put up a 10 by... A go, go through show cast, and get, starting at the A's, and get a 10 by 8 glossy of them and feature it in the exhibition, you're guaranteed of let, getting at least one actor down per exhibition. And I say there is such a treasure trove of material here now to be used as a, as a, as a resource. You know, I, I think there are at least three hour-long late-night cabarets shows waiting to be uh, 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 created out of what's in, just in those boxes immediately behind you. And it hasn't happened. 
you know. Uh, we have was a West Australian Symphony Orchestra just down the corridor there. I think three of them in that time have bothered to come down the corridor and see. Mm. One I, gentleman came because there was a photograph of Joan Sutherland on the wall and there he was plucking his instrument in the background. That was his reason for coming here. Uh, <clears throat> and um, I had an exhibition up uh, in there of going from the Diaghilevs, got Diaghilev costumes, right through to the de Basils coming to Australia to the establishment of the W.A. Ballet. So that we had the W.A. Ballet sitting up at the top of the stairs there. It was on for three months and just three of them came downstairs to see it. I said to one of the dancers, I said, look, I go all the way out to bloody Rehobold Hill to see your choreography. I said, you can't even walk downstairs to see my... my but it went right over their heads, which <clears throat> leads me into uh, criticisms of the performing arts. I think in many cases we are our own worst enemies. We seem to lack... We seem incapable of having an overview... I think we would have had a new playhouse on the river years ago, probably, if there had not been the infighting. I can remember we had a, a minister for the arts at the time, and it was the Labour minister for the arts, and she came to this uh, forum for a new theatre, and the fighting that went on there at that meeting. We don't want this. We don't want that. We want. We, we don't want a proscenium march. That. That's this. That's, and. Ended up, and her advisers were there, which was even more deadly. And they were, well, we're getting out of this, aren't we? We don't know. It was it was shameful. It was absolutely shameful what went on at that meeting, and uh, this inability to have a, a, a an overview, I call, uh, and to form a united front so that you have political clout. I call the, the the arts in Perth fully paid up members of the PPPPPPPPPP brigade. My part, my play, my performance, my production, my poem, my puppet, my painting, my piece of pottery and piss off everything else, you know? And that, uh, come the time I do remember of the, the, uh, the saving here at the badge, there were performers in Perth who couldn't have cared less. They wanted a little space somewhere to do their thing. This is elitist. This was an elitist space, to use their terms. And they wouldn't have minded if it had cared if it had gone. Mind you, those same people have never turned down a gig here since claiming they refused to work in an elitist space with these dressing rooms and facilities. And this is what you're up against. I will say one thing in all this criticism. We seem to have got the music scene right here in Perth. It's a very vibrant music scene uh, with the university and Roger Smalley and Wazzo with Janet Holmes Accord. Um, I, I, I think so, but you see, I do believe that you need a functioning city. I, I must make this point that for Perth... The cultural cringe, the celebrated cultural cringe, is a double yoker. Melbourne and Sydney have long uh, cringed within the uh, in the shadow of uh, London and New York, while Perth takes the art form a step 
further and has cringed in the shadow of Melbourne and Sydney. So there's that extra stage, extra step. And uh, I mean, at the moment, we've got the WA Academy of Performing Arts. We're still, still uh, 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 basking in the limelight of Lisa McCune and uh, Hugh Jackman and all them. Um, conveniently overlooking the fact that if they came back here they'd be dressing in a broom cupboard and doing a cooperative at the uh, at the Blue Room. Uh, my mum rang me in a state of indignation once. She said, been listening to Talkback Radio in the premiere at the time, one of the courts. Um, had just come back from South Korea and he said he saw a beautiful production of Les Miserables and there was so-and-so in it and there was so-and-so and then so-and-so and all graduates from the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, you could call it a West Australian production almost. Uh, um, <laughs> yes, we're not having the responsibility of, of, of supporting those those graduates but we can bask, you know, in somebody else paying for them. And I'm delighted to say my mum was incredibly indignant at, at at that. But still, where do they work? Nobody's even thought about that. Nobody's even thought about that. And so the performers reach those who do reach a stage here immediately go off to the other side. But I would like to, um, if I may, read a condensed version of a speech I made uh, at the launching of yet another plan for another playhouse on the riverfront in Perth. This is before theatre administrator Duncan Ord uh, moved sideways after many, many years uh, with Black Swan and so forth. And he put it rather succinctly, he said, Perth wealthy don't create art, they pursue it. Now, explain that a degree further. There's more social cachet in going to see the 9,857th performance of uh, Phantom of the Opera in London than it is coming to a Wednesday matinee in Perth of the same thing. Uh, I went to the opening night in Melbourne last week, you know, and said, oh, well, that's why you went to the here. Uh, so I would like to... Uh, I speak as an inner-city resident. I've lived in Adelaide Terrace for a long time, long before it became trendy, since Robert Van Mecklenburg was arrested for doing the nude scene in Equus, in fact. So this is my patch, my backyard. And what do I see from my backyard? I see a montage of missed opportunities. A city the bricks and mortar of which failed to complement the, the glorious standards set by Mother Nature. A city six or seven years older than Melbourne, but which doesn't look or act its age. Now before you go crook at me, I speak also as a fourth generation West Australian. I belong here. The Swan River flows through my veins, and I'm not happy, Jan. Not happy at all. Again, before you go crook at me, do a little research. Do what I did on a recent Tuesday evening. Go to a seven o'clock screening of a movie at the Piccadilly Theatre. The Piccadilly, of course, stands there as a reminder of the art deco craze of the late 30s. 
The depression was over and we were in a period of growth financed by the state's second gold mining boom and dark deco cinemas were springing up everywhere, sometimes opening within days of each other, the Astor, the Signet, the Plaza, the Windsor and that William Street masterpiece, the Metro. The Metro, unfortunately, like most of St George's Terrace, has gone the way of Betty the Bulldozer. The clean, streamlined, uncluttered style of Art Deco was meant to show the world that Perth was up to date and ready to go. Indeed it was. Ready to go to war. Today the Piccadilly, as the city's only remaining original cinema, could be, should be, a showpiece. An Art Deco showpiece giving me, and my particular talent, a sense of place. But just to survive, it's been brutally carved into three, its original foyer furnishings falling apart, surrounded by cheap plastic garden furniture. Heritage? So on that Tuesday evening, I went into the Piccadilly at 7 o'clock and came out again at 9.15pm into a lifeless, empty Hay Street Mall. I turned right and headed for William Street, turned right again and walked past the junk food strip, glancing across to where the metro used to be, turned right again into Murray Street, where I was again a minority of one, past the void that was Forest Place. By now I was on tiptoe because my footsteps were reverberating from one side of the street to the other. I turned right again into deserted Barrack Street and made for the terrace where I tagged along behind a gaggle of Asian tourists returning to their hotel for an empty night. As I passed Pier Street, I looked up to the playhouse. Dark. No show. Move on. Then, as viewed across its red brick forecourt, it was difficult to tell whether the concert hall was open or closed. And so, as I approached my dear little home near the causeway, I recalled four lines from one of my more acidulous poems. I'm so fond of my fabulous city. It's in an immaculate state. The garbage goes nightly by seven, and we clear out the people by eight. But are we fond of it? Do we love it? Judging by the increase increasing number of suburban dwellers who actually boast of never coming into it, that's a fair question. Perhaps we're only fond of it as a backdrop. We're fond of the skyline as we zoom around Riverside Drive on our way to somewhere else. I'm so pleased with my pretty Perth city as I speed home to North Mullaloo. When I drive back to see Mum and Dad in Coogee, Perth's a wonderful place to pass through. As I wrote in my column, perhaps Perth should only be experienced from King's Park. Up there on the escarpment, distance certainly lends enchantment, because the city seems to equal its setting. The central, district, the central business district appears to match its sublime natural environment. Unseen is the vulgar architecture of Myers and the brutal walkway blocking Forest Place from the railway station. Out of sight is a row of Bumbry-esque buildings surrounding the playhouse in Pierce Street and the forbidding wall of concrete confronting interstate visitors as they leave their hotel in Irwin Street. 
Veiled from view is the tacky advertising tower beside Horseshoe Bridge and the monstrous structure housing the fire brigade in Hay Street. Standing up there, near the Anzac Memorial, appearances can be very deceptive. One forgets the yawning emptiness after dark and the alarming lack of cultural energy. It's impossible to believe that below lies a town that's not needed by the suburban masses and not fashionable among the wealthy. Yes, dear reader, from such a great height the Perth skyline forms a perfect backdrop for lives lived elsewhere. So tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm, I'm wrong and I'll ask you, when did you last drop into the Hay Street Mall? When did you last mix with the concrete and gas? When did you last get down and dirty at street level? I'm so tired of people saying, but Perth's a beautiful city. I now reply, yeah, dumb blondes can be beautiful too. But as with blondes, I want some action and culture between the ears. So too with Perth, I want some action and culture between the railway station and the Barrack Street jetty. And I want it now. No live horse you'll get grass, as my grandmother used to say. Now, I'm making demands on the central business district. I want it to do, and I want you to do the same. Reclaim Perth. For the sake of the arts, reclaim Perth. But the arts alone can't be seen as a quick fix cultural band-aid covering the scars of decades of insensitive, unimaginative development. <clears throat> before a note of music is played, before a step of dance is choreographed, before a word of drama is emoted, the actual city itself must be treated as an art form, a cultural entity and an enriching experience just to be in. A setting in which music, dance, drama, painting and literature can blossom. Several months ago, I, for the first time, I visited Brisbane, where I was bowled over, knocked sideways, sideways by the scale and significance of the Queensland Performing Arts Centre. That vast complex museum, art gallery, concert hall, drama theatre, experimental studio, conservatorium, large accommodation, uh, large accommodating foyers, delightful art gift shop, cafes, restaurants, sculptures, fountains. Take a few steps down a pathway and you're in a rainforest growing on the site of Expo 88 and all on the banks of the Brisbane River. A river chock-a-block with ferries, river cats, transporting thousands of Brisbaneites further, uh, hither and yon. And at night I'd catch a ferry to the cultural centre and it just, just to step ashore, stepping ashore to see a show. And at interval, on the balconies, I'd gaze down on a scene quite novel to these West Australian eyes, people strolling back and forth outside in an environment of the cultural centre after dark. And I'd say to myself, Perth, hello. Do you know that Perth must have the only cultural centre that's a no-go area after dark? Yes. But that needs further explanation. Ladies and gentlemen, on this side of the continent, we've long been accustomed to being upstaged by Melbourne and Sydney. But Brisbane... 
Upon my return, seeking a little intellectual stimulation, I headed for a late-night libation in Northbridge, our so-called Bohemian Quarter. I crossed Barrack Street Bridge, standing beside which is a gigantic and garish billboard, strategically placed to destroy any sense of design the bridge might have. Spanning the railway line for nearly a quarter of a se- for, for, for nearly a century, this sturdy structure is purely functional, purely practical. It is, however, adorned by several Edwardian lamp standards that would look quite attractive if switched on after sunset. Uh, they weren't, of course. Fortunately, one's nocturnal totter was part of the way illuminated by the light bouncing off the aforementioned billboard. How stylish. House superb. The sort of scene that inspires poets, dramatists and songwriters, don't you think? Under the bridges of Perth with you. Mm. The city of light or the city of never mind over doesn't matter. Onto this emptiness, we're hoping to draft a culture, fix up the city first. And if you think I'm being unduly negative, do what I did. Go to the pictures at the Piccadilly next Tuesday night. And when you come out of the theatre at 9.15pm, go for a bit of a wander. Uh, I'd just like to finish off with the observation that uh, I was at a Perth City Council meeting recently and they're talking about all sorts of plans to revitalise the city. And I said to two of the councillors at the time, I said, I think to get your bearings before we get too far into these plans, you should go next time we're expecting a blockbuster or a show that's going to sell out at His Majesty's to come in and sit with the stage door keeper and log the calls that come in. And we had that three weeks ago, or two weeks ago, whatever, with Maggie Smith, knowing it was going to sell out. The sorts of calls you got uh, from would-be patrons. Where is His Majesty's? Is there a car park? What time was the show finish? I mean... They haven't left home, but they want to know what time they can come home again. I never come into the city. I haven't been into the city for seven years. I I, I hate coming into the city, but uh, Maggie Smith, I want to see. And this is the uh, this is what you have to overcome before the curtain even goes up. I just want to say happy birthday, Equity. Happy happy birthday, and thank you for giving me in part a sense of professional identity I want to say thank you also for thinking nationally to the point of having dear Genevieve and Tony come over here to record our sentiments, our feelings our observations Uh, you couldn't have given us here in the West a better present thank you